Now, when, when we go to um, different countries, um, and some of us have travelled more than others, but when we go to different countries with their different religions, um, different sort of practices, different cultures, it's easy to be um, misunderstood. And I don't just mean from, from the language, because the customs are different. Um, for instance, we can go to some countries and how we welcome each other may be completely the right way or the wrong way. We might give them a hug and they might find it offensive. We might not give them a hug and they might find that offensive as well. So it's all a bit uh, difficult. Um, or when we're having a meal in some of the Himalayan areas, um, you burp as good manners to show you've appreciated the meal. But if you do it in some cultures and some areas, they will think you were ill-mannered. So there are um, differences in how we, um, you know, in different countries, on how we conduct ourselves and perhaps in particular etiquette. Um, but basically, I suppose, um, the, the, the behaviour in, in, in most countries, what's generally accepted as right and wrong, is a, a, a sort of an air of similarity about it. And then, of course, cultures can change in different countries. I've always been fascinated uh, by, uh, in Japan, how in the, uh, in the early part of the 20th century, in their, their war against Russia, they showed tremendous compassion to enemies and treated captured enemies extremely well. But then in 1941, in World War II, they completely flipped over and their way that they treated enemies. So cultures can change. But we're going to be looking at this evening of being transferred into the kingdom of God. And that only occurs when we become Christians, when we are converted and our hearts are transformed, when we have new hearts. It is, it's, it's revolutionary and our behaviour must be distinctive and the point is that unlike Japan our God never changes so the kingdom and our hearts and our behavior should not change now we're going to look at as I said two of the Beatitudes this evening and we must remember that they're not directions to Christian living they're not saying Christians how you should be they are actually descriptions of what we are if we sit here this evening as believers. It should be that that's how you would recognize a believer, how you would recognize a Christian, by the described in the Beatitude. And this is a crucial message, as I said. John Stott said it's the greatest sermon ever preached. And the way that it's emphasized in, in scripture is in verse 2 Jesus opened his mouth and taught them saying whenever that expression is used in the Bible opened his mouth it means that something is going to be said that is absolutely essential and important now before we um, move into these uh, particular two beatitudes I just want to uh, make a few introductory points now, first of all, as most of you will know, the Beatitudes form part of the Sermon 
of the mount. And it says right at the beginning, doesn't it? And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on a mountain. When he was seated, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So this was a message for his disciples. Conversed. Consequently, it's a message basically to Christians. But it doesn't mean to say that um, if you're not a Christian this evening, that you can put your feet up and uh, think about something else. Because it also is a message to unbelievers. It's, it isn't just restricted to Christians alone. The Beatitude upholds the beauty the selflessness, the love and concern of the Christian way of life. And it challenges, by its very nature, the, the way of the world, the world kingdom, or Satan's kingdom, which is ultimately self-centered. It's ultimately pointless. Um, and it shows up the contrast between God's kingdom and the kingdom of the unbeliever with Satan as its ruler. So that's the first thing, that it's a message for both believer and unbeliever this evening. The second thing is this word blessed. And uh, there's been lots written about this because it comes from the, the Greek makarios. Remember Archbishop Makarios from Cyprus. Uh, and Makarios is often defined as happy. And perhaps it's an unfortunate um, definition, really, because the word happy, from what we understand, comes from from the Middle English hap, and it gives... Um, the root to the word haphazard or happen Um, and it means an event or a circumstance and happy or being happy in this that sense is that the events that have happened to you have, have, have caused you to be happy so it's dependent on circumstances but uh what jesus is talking about here in blessedness is that it is God-given. It's independent of circumstances. It's very, I, this is very much the ideal, but it almost sort of says, really, that if, if something difficult happens, that that shouldn't alter this genuine feeling of blessedness. We know that it does. We do get knocked sideways by this. But as we'll see, the blessedness is something that's rooted in the Christian that will never change. So it's God-given, it's independent of circumstances. It's a continuous experience, which I've just sort of said, really. And it's ultimately related to a person's spiritual condition. It's not related to whether they get the breaks in this life or whether they don't. Whether everything seems to be stacked against them or whether everything seems to fall on its feet. It's related to a person's spiritual condition. So, there's a message for believers and unbelievers, and blessedness is talking about um, a happiness, a source of joy that is rooted in our God and not in what happens to us. The next thing that, uh, as an introductory point, really, is that as 
all Christians are to be like this. Not just the special few. We don't read through all these and say, oh, I, could, you know, I know I'm a Christian, but oh, I could never aspire to these. Pure in heart, merciful. Oh, no, that's... But no, all Christians are to be like this. It's not just for the special few, for you Eric Liddell's or Hudson Taylor's. That's why the, the system of, of canonizing, um, making believers, purported believers, saints... Is so wrong. It's almost saying that there's a, a, a separate level uh, of people. But no, this is for all Christians. It, if we are in God's kingdom, this should mark us out. Shouldn't be that we're sort of semi detached. We're half in the world and half in God's kingdom. If we're in God's kingdom, this should be a description of us. This is a distinctive heart distinctive behavior that belongs to each one of us and then also as by way of introduction probably thinking this is some introduction um, these descriptions of the distinctive behavior and distinctive mindset and heart set of those who are in God's kingdom can only be produced by grace alone they can only be produced by salvation, by being given a new heart. It's, it's not anything that we would naturally be born with. Now, I've heard it often saying that about some people that they're more natural, naturally Christian in tendency and personality. And what, what they mean by that is that they're not that bad-tempered quite calm or they're naturally quite generous you know they're always willing to put their hand in their pocket and not zip their wallet up or they're positive in attitude they're not negative you know but that is a superficial and wrong view of redeemed the redeemed heart and redeemed behavior the distinctive behavior that the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about is laid down in these verses. That's what marks someone who is in God's kingdom. What a Christian looks like is shown in those Beatitudes. And finally, Christians, it comes quite obviously from what I've said, Christians and non-Christians belong to two different realms. It was only um, a couple of days ago and I was rereading this. I, had, I didn't notice it before. Um, verse 3 has something in common with verse 10. Because it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then in verse 10 it says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The two, uh, first and the eighth beatitude, are, are recorded that they are in the kingdom of heaven. It's almost bookending the Beatitudes, stressing the fact that believers are in God's kingdom. Now, they're two different realms, aren't they? I mean, if you were to ask generally what people in the world who are unbelievers would count as being happy or being blessed... And you hear that term, don't you? He's blessed with good looks or he's blessed with such and such. 
What the world counts as being happy or, or, or being blessed as is if they've got a good job, perhaps happy family life, bit of money in their pockets, uh, popular, good looking, got a good sense of humour. That's the sort of the manifesto, isn't it, for the non-Christian world. And we, we see it in adverts, don't we? I just thought of a, a few the slogan for Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. Or Coca-Cola, it's the real thing. Or to remember, the future's bright, the future's orange. That's the manifesto of the world, isn't it? Getting pleasure, finding meaning or tempted meaning in the work, ambition, power, money, all those things we've mentioned. But in God's kingdom, true happiness is not found in those things. True blessedness is only found in the kingdom of God. And it's defined not by what you have, no matter what you have. It's not defined by what you do or what you've achieved. It's defined by who you are. And we now move on to the two that we're going to look at um, this evening is uh, verse 3 and verse 4 now first of all in verse 3 we're going to look at blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven poor in spirit now what does that mean there's been um, different people saying different things well first of all it doesn't mean that you materially it doesn't mean that you're skint you've got no money indeed if it meant that you wouldn't be doing a favour would you by giving money to the poor it doesn't mean that you're materially poor it also doesn't mean that you've got a negative view of yourself that you're continually down on yourself you remember in David Copperfield Uriah Heap oh man Mr Amble Dr Mr. Copperfield, and he didn't really mean it, but he was trying to always pretend or make out that he was nothing or a nobody. That's not being poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit is somebody who acknowledges their sin and helplessness before God. Who acknowledges their sin and helplessness before God. They understand that they're, they're spiritually bankrupt, that they're empty, that they are casting themselves completely on God's grace. It's the, the poverty that is spoken of in Psalm 40. And it's the poverty of spirit which was summed up in that well-known hymn, Rock of Ages, um, written by that fantastic name, Augustus Montague Toplady. That's a good name, isn't it? Do you remember it? I'll read out a couple of verses this evening. One, the first one, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless, Look to thee for grace. Foul, 
I to the fountain fly, wash me saviour or I die. It's somebody who realises that they are nothing, they have nothing to commend themselves. And indeed, this, what Jesus said, they weren't just sayings or lessons just flung together. There's an obvious reason why this is the first beatitude. Because nobody can be a Christian without it. It's the key to all the others. That's why it's the first one. When we become a Christian, we come to that point and we must continually have that, that heart, that state of heart, is that there's nothing we can do for our salvation. There's nothing in us that will commend us or will help us reach heaven. That it's all of God. And again, I've quoted him before, Thomas Watson. Um, and again, Thomas Watson said, poverty of spirit or poor of spirit paves a causeway of blessedness. So it's, 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 the, it's the only way that we can be saved is realizing that we are dependent totally on God's grace and God's salvation. The key to living in the kingdom is repentance, we know that. But it's not just particular sins, and it is that as well, but that the whole basis of our lives hitherto has been wrong and abomination to God. And that we need, just like the um, kings like Josiah when he came in and he tore down all the idol worships, we need to tear it down. We don't need to sort of tinker with our lives. That does no good at all. We need to tear it down. We need to start almost from the beginning. It's often said, isn't it, that the, uh, the theme of the Christian life of becoming a Christian is that the only way up is down. The only way that we can progress in the Christian life is realizing that we need a new birth. We need to be a new creation. Just to illustrate this, if we could just turn to Luke chapter 18, the par- well-known parable. Pa- uh, Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted themselves that they were righteous in other words, they thought they could, had something to commend themselves to God in of themselves and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I possess. Oh, that tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That man came out a believer. He realized that he had nothing had nothing to bring to God threw himself on God's grace the, the Pharisee he might as well have gone to the shops 
It had no purpose whatsoever. He just came as an opportunity to parade to God, placard to God how good he was. And he went out in his delusion that somehow he was a friend of God. The Pharisee wanted approval that he was okay. The publican or the tax collector saw no good in himself. And the Pharisee was deluded because he didn't have his eyes on God. He had eyes on others, comparing himself with others. But the tax collector, the publican, only had his eyes on God. And he saw God's holiness and he saw his sin and his spiritual bankruptcy. But we are prone, aren't we, to be like the Pharisee. And as I'm saying to you, I'm certainly referring to myself. We go through spells, often, far too often, where we're full of ourselves. We believe we're something. We compare ourselves favorably to others. Even at times see ourselves as the only one that matters the center of the universe. And what we're doing when we do that is that we're relying on our natural birth, aren't we? We're relying on our background, how we were born, who we were born to, what, our, what things we've achieved or whatever, our natural birth. But unless we're born again, unless we're new creatures, Unless we see our sin and throw ourselves on the grace of God, we'll be similarly deluded like the Pharisee. I mean, we just need to look as a description of poor in spirit to our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus became as a man, a God-man, not clutching to his, his prerogatives of Godhead, Indeed, on the earth, he said, I can do nothing of myself. I mean, just look at Jesus' prayer life. Where he prayed to his father time and time again. A further sign of his dependence on him. So as we consider this, blessed are the poor in spirit. Let us ask ourselves this evening, for believers, are we genuinely poor in spirit? Do I accept that? that none of my religion, my respectability, talents or moral efforts make the slightest contribution to our salvation? Do I really see myself as a helpless, hopeless sinner, dependent totally on God's grace? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And may I just have the, um, just give you another verse out of Rock of Ages. Um, not the labours of my hands can fulfil thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. So that's blessed in the poor in spirit. Let's move on to the next verse. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now surely 
that's a contradiction in terms. Uh, John Stott says, it's almost like saying, happy are the unhappy. Um, blessedness, mourning, isn't that a complete paradox, complete opposite? Well, we first of all need to look at what we mean, uh, what Jesus meant by those who mourn. Well, first of all, not talking about earthly mourning, which we've all experienced at some point in our lives, bereavement especially. And often the, those, that verse is used wrongly, isn't it, in funerals. It's not talking about earthly mourning. And when we, we lose somebody, we are naturally extremely upset or something terrible has happened to us. That's, but it's not referring to that. It's also not referring to sinful or self-indulgent mourning, which we see with certain characters in the Bible, don't we? We see um, with Cain, um, where he was um, being told to roam the earth and he was um, feeling really sorry and aggrieved for himself. Or Esau, who um, just was sorry for himself that he'd been such an idiot with Jacob. Or Ahab, mourning because he didn't get what he wanted, Naboth's vineyard. And of course, the New Testament example of Judas. Charles Hodge, the um, theologian, calls that the sorrow of unrenewed men, the sorrow of the unsanctified heart. It's sorrow for what it has done to you, not sorrow for sin against God. Now, when people have um, been found out even though they've been involved in a conduct for a long, long time, perhaps having had an affair or something like that, for months or years, and have found out, and they're full of contrition, allegedly. But it's only because they've been found out and their reputation is in tatters. It's not that they have been sorry for their sin against God. No, it's not earthly mourning or sinful or self-indulgent mourning that's been spoken about here. It's spiritual mourning. It's what is described in, in Psalm 34 as a broken heart and a contrite spirit. It's, it, again, just like poor in spirit, it's not a natural quality. It's not... Some, this is why it's, it's, it's so wrong when the, uh, the unconverted say, oh, well, I try and live by the Beatitudes. It's rubbish. You cannot have that as a description of your behavior if you are not a saved sinner, if you are not a new creature. It runs, it's not a natural quality. It runs against what the world says to mourn um, I think of some of the songs um, that, you know, you, you, you shouldn't mourn. You know, you should, you should always keep a happy face. You know, put on a happy face. Songs such as, pack up your troubles in your old kit bag and smile. Or the old Charlie Chaplin song from modern times, smile though your heart is aching. Then it goes on, light up your face with gladness, hide every trace of gladness. That's the, the, uh, the, uh, what the world says. So, you know, you've got, you've got to overcome it and, and, and come out smiling. Um, 
Now, this is something, this spiritual morning is something that God graciously works in our heart on conversion through the Holy Spirit. What it is, it's sorrow from sin. It follows on from being poor in spirit, doesn't it? When we realize our sin and our hopelessness before God and we we realize God's grace and how our salvation was, was brought to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, when we realize that, it makes us truly sorrow, sorry for our sins and how far we fall short of God's holiness. And that's what it means by blessed are those who mourn. Now, before you were a, a, a Christian, that didn't enter into your mind that, that, um, that you would be upset, that you would mourn because you have offended a holy God. You'd probably come up with something where saying, well, everybody does it, or it's not as bad as such and such. It's not a natural frame of mind and a frame of heart. It's only through being a believer. So it's, it's sorrow. It's true sorrow for our sin. And as I was um, considering these verses, it did make me think that perhaps, certainly for myself and perhaps for, for, for many of us, that we don't really feel that genuine sorrow for our sin. That we don't have that spiritual mourning. But if we were to stop just at that part of the verse, you would think, well, that's a bit incomplete, isn't it? Isn't that a bit, bit miserable a view of this distinctive characteristic of the believer that we should, we should mourn? Does that mean that we just go around, you know, dressed in black and miserable face all the time? In fact, if you thought that that's all that verse was about, you might be tempted to um, go back to what I was saying that the world does. Start singing up, pack up your troubles in your old kit bag or smile while your heart is breaking. But no, the verse doesn't stop there, does it? It says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. We have perfect comfort. Now, we tend to think of the word of, of comfort as, as somebody just sort of, um, you know, when you've gone through a particularly difficult time and, you know, and they perhaps put their arm around you and say, there, there, it's not that bad or such and such. But when the Bible speaks about comfort, it talks about God coming alongside you through his Holy Spirit, bringing outside resources to help you in this particular difficulty through this mourning for how sinful we are, how, how poor we are as Christians, as believers, how easy we get knocked sideways by difficult things that happen to us. It isn't just a there, 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 but it's an active sitting alongside us and helping us. So this perfect comfort, how, does, how is it achieved? How? It says, for they shall be comforted. If we mourn for sin, how are we comforted? Well, I 
think, a number of ways. First of all, as I've just said, our God, our Father, comforts us. In Romans uh, chapter 15, Paul talks about God who gives us endurance and encouragement. What comfort that is. Or God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know from 1 John chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 that Jesus presents before God's throne all the merits of his atoning sacrifice. Says that verse, doesn't it? If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What a comfort that is when we seem to fail, we seem to fall, and we still seem to fall into sin. What a comfort at times of mourning for sin. And then, of course, we've been doing this on a Wednesday evening, the role of the Holy Spirit, described as the comforter. The Holy Spirit gives us grace for each day, gives us wisdom, patience, courage, comfort. It helps us erase the presence of Satan and the powers of the flesh in our lives and impresses upon us our spiritual senses, our day-to-day life, the sense of our saviour, the conqueror of our sinful ways and habits. So God comforts us through the Father, Son, through the Holy Spirit, but as well as that help from the Trinity, we're greatly comforted, aren't we, by God's word. Again, in Romans chapter 15, the Bible gives us that endurance, encouragement and hope. It helps us, brings us, um, gives us encouragement, comfort, rebuke when necessary, instruction and correction. Let's just read Acts chapter 20. We're looking at Acts this morning. This is a, a very helpful verse. Acts chapter 20 and verse 32. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. So we're comforted by God's word. We're comforted as well by the preaching of God's word. How important is preaching? Biblical preaching that brings God's word in all its truth. So we must pray for our pastor on a regular basis. We must pray for ourselves that when we come under the words that we are prepared, our hearts are prepared, and we pray for one another as we receive the word. So God's word and, God, and the preaching of God's word, and another thing we've been considering on a Wednesday of comfort is fellowship, isn't it? The Thessalonian church talked about fellowship as building each other up. And then in Romans, again, it says it's mutually encouraging one another, sharing each other's burdens. Are we really taking advantage of that great comfort that is spoken about in verse 4 through the fellowship of one another? And then lastly, a way that we're comforted and mentioned many times in, in the New Testament is the comfort of knowing of Christ's return, that this isn't 
going to remain as it is. The Lord's return will usher in the day when there'll be a radiant church without stain, wrinkle or blemish. Read that in Ephesians. See a new heaven, Peter says, and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So yes, we mourn for sin, but we know our sins are forgiven. If we're believers, we know we're reconciled to God. We know that God will take us back when we've fallen away or backslidden. And we know about the joy of the glory to come. And that is why we are blessed. I was um, lent a book on um, the Sermon on the Mount by um, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I was reading it um, the other day, on Saturday. And he said that during the war, um, many of the, the chaplains to the forces, they, he witnessed them trying to be like one of the lads. You know, it'd smoke, occasionally they'd drink, the odd swear word. And they obviously thought that it, if they were acted like that, it would break down that sort of barriers and make them think, well, they're reasonable blokes, they're good blokes, and it would get them into church. Well, it didn't happen, according to Martin Lloyd-Jones. We, and we still face that, that sort of today, that sort of, we talked about the, the two worlds, God's kingdom being distinct from the kingdom of the unbelievers, but tried somehow to blur them. Listening to the radio a few weeks ago, and uh, they were interviewing a vicar who, every Sunday, dressed up as a clown. And they interviewed him, and he said, well, it, you know, it's to get the people in, get the people to listen, you know, entertain. And then in the same program, another one had a bouncy castle in the back of the church. Get the kids in. But as we said, the two worlds are completely different and that's why the Beatitudes are important we've only looked at two this evening but we'll look at those in perhaps in, before the end of the year but as we consider those verses are we identify, identifiable to ourselves and most importantly to our, our God as a dweller, a liver in God's kingdom or is really our heart displaying that we're, that we're not in God's kingdom? Or we're somehow trying to put a, a foot in both camps? And again, Lloyd-Jones says that if we as believers truly lived as, it, as it's defined in the Beatitudes, if we truly lived it like it, the world would be shocked. And the revival that we pray for would have already started. So as we hold this mirror up of these two verses, it makes us realize what a marvelous kingdom God's kingdom is. And we pray that our behavior, our hearts, would be distinctive, would be different. And we pray that as we consider these things, 
We ask God that we will be, we'll be poor in spirit, that we would daily mourn for our sins and we would daily avail of ourselves of the ones that are available of, our, of comfort, such as reading God's word and praying and coming under the, the sound of God's word and, and having true fellowship with one another. Amen.